Welcome back, folks, to the craziest people in lighting, which is Michael Colligan and Greg Eric. Oh, no, it's TCP. That's right. I forgot. But before we talk a little bit more about them, Greg, we got to talk about Dr. Alp Dermis, Department of Architectural Engineering at Pennsylvania State University. That was a wild one, man. Yeah, great topic. Great discussion on color and how that matters in lighting. Not just color, but perception, like how we can influence the perception yes. of people. We, it was kind of a wild talk. We went back and forth on, you know, he told us what he knew, and then we, we talked about what the industry and what we don't know and what maybe we can do. Wouldn't that be fun? So That'd thank you, Dr. Alp Dermis, for coming on the show. Good times. But, Greggy, the craziest ones. We used to have the title. We used to have the title, and now it goes over to TCP. Go to tcpi.com, Greg. I go there every day. Got to check it out, and they're solistic sun-mimicking lights. And what they do with that is an innovative LED chip. You know, a lot of people have LED lighting, and, and they slam it out there and make it look like everybody else's, but TCP takes it to the next step. If that, does that make them crazy? I don't know. Does it make them smart? Yeah. But it, it, it tells them that what they do is they make a innovative chip that eliminates a blue spike that's found in most LED lights. So it's the most natural sunlight bulb in the market. And it comes in uh, an LED T8, which I know I because I've sold some. I've had specific applications where people need that. And that is really the only solution in the market that I've found that gives you the best light available out of an LED T8 tube. That's from TCP. They also have lamps and their starlight lamp. So check that product line out. And as distributors out there, I order from, I order from TCP every day. <laughs> so um, I use them every day. So go to tcpi.com, check them out. And, of course, long-time members of Nailed, Greg. Um, if you're not associated, that's your problem at this point. But I've been telling you guys about this for years. you got to join Nailed. But for right now, Dr. Alp Dermis, Get a Grip on Lighting. Welcome to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Dr. Alp Dermis. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> Say hello to Greg Eric. Hello, Greg. Hi. Thanks for coming on. So we were we were looking at your bio a little bit, and rather than me try to repeat it, it looks like you're a lighting scientist. Is that accurate? Uh, that is correct, yes. Um, I have done my PhD in architectural sciences, specialized in illumination in the University of Sydney, Australia. Okay, so what do you do on a daily basis as a lighting scientist? I do research on visual perception um, and how lighting systems affect people's perception and how we can improve the um, current systems to make it more efficient, energy efficient, but also uh, increase the quality of the lighting. So I'm so, uh, currently working at, yeah. Uh, just keep going. Yep. Now, I'm just currently working at the Penn State as an assistant professor, so my job includes teaching as well as doing research as well. Now, you said a word there that um, I think, in our opinion, at least Mike might chime in too, but efficiency. You're, you're, you're working on, on making lights more efficient still. Uh, I think we've gotten to a point where efficiency is there, but quality is really what I think is, is something that needs to be stressed more. But what are your thoughts on those two? Uh, that's a great question, and that is coming more and more into uh, the public discussion of lighting and of efficiency is in a point that we cannot really improve 
the luminous efficiency of a specific light source, an individual light source, but we should be also looking at the quality of the lighting that we get from the lighting systems. And I, I agree to a point that um, lighting efficiency theoretically can hit a ceiling, um, and there are other non-energy benefits like the circadian impacts, non-image forming impacts, but also the, the visual perception, the clarity, and the um, other impacts as well. Uh, well. This might be an odd question, but is uh, is all of your research only LED focused, or are you looking at other technologies? Well, I would like to say that my research is technology neutral. Um, LEDs just happen to be more um, efficient and modern and contemporary right now, uh, but the metrics that we use or just the, the qualities that we are looking for in lighting systems are not specific to any specific technology, right? If you can define the effect of lighting in a neutral technology, neutral way, we can make our results, the research results more generalizable um, in the future as well. So these results can be used for uh, other technologies in the future. The word quality, that's a dangerous word, okay? <laughs> and uh, for quality to a lighting distributor or to a contractor would indicate the ability of the light source to emit the amount of lumens it did from the beginning of its life until the end over a very long period of time. So to a lighting distributor, quality is about, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but quality is about how long the product lasts and how good its lumen maintenance is. You take a lighting designer and quality is about beauty. It's more about the effect that the lighting system is creating. When you talk about quality with um, people that are talking about the non-energy benefits of lighting, they may be talking about circadian. They may be talking about uh, dark sky. They may be like quality is a, a term that is often talked about, but rarely defined. When you're talking about quality of light, what are you referring to? Uh, that's a great question, and I totally agree that the we talk about quality as an umbrella term. I mean, not I specifically in a research project or research paper, but when lighting folk start talking about quality, they might have different um, aspects of lighting the visual, the, let's call them visual environment, right? Uh, depending on which aspect you're looking for. If you're looking for a manufacturer uh, point of view, uh, of course, the quality of the uh, the, the built. Uh, luminary is more important for you, how much you're getting for your buck and, you know, the, the life uh, as well as the, the luminous flux output. Uh, when I say quality, I should maybe um, narrow it down a little more. I say perceived quality of the visual environment. So that is things that when a occupant um, in a space uh, user, home, uh, let's call them user, goes to a space and starts looking for uh, things because that's what, human, what humans do, right? We, we are trying to find information, the visual information about the environment because we're either trying to complete some tasks, uh, visual tasks, or we're trying to um, engage in some activities, trying to find out what's happening in the environment or just relax. So that quality is something that is not widely um, quantified or um, uh, materialized in a way, and that's what I'm interested in in my research. It's more about the human aspects, uh, human aspect of the quality side. If we, um, so I'm going to make a comparison here, and and Greg, you tell me if I'm going off on a bad tangent here or not. But uh, you say a quality social networking platform, 
right? So what does that mean? You know, uh, you know, does it uh, does it help people or or does it does it hurt people? Does it is it engagement or is it addiction? Can we manipulate the visual environment or can we use lighting to manipulate human beings so that they perceive things differently or in a way in which people want them using light? Like if I wanted to change your perception on something, you understand what I mean? Like, let's say I want to change your political perception on something, or let's say I want to change, like nudge you to change your ideas. Does any of your research discuss perception, light, and the use of it to, um, uh, to change people's hearts and minds? Not the cognitive side of things, but I think it's a great question. Um, I personally think that there are a lot of different aspects that go, goes into people's um, decisions, daily decision-making, and it's really hard to boil down the decision-making into one single aspect. You cannot really generalize and say, you know, changing lighting from A to B will make people's hearts and minds change because humans are quite complex, right? Our cognitive processes, there are a lot of different um, individual differences, cultural differences, um, and those differences come into play uh, and how we interact with the world is kind of affected by those uh, processes that's really hard to quantify. So with lighting, in, in terms of lighting, what we can do is, uh, I guess, more on the concentrate on the things, tangible things for us that we can quantify without getting too much into um, these effects, what we call confining factors, that the things that you cannot control. If you want to do an experiment, say, I want to see, I'm just making this up. Um, uh, the effect of CCT, correlated color temperature, on people's um, um, preference of a political party, say, because the elections are coming, so it's a you know topic that you might be interested in the research. And you can just put people into um, a room and just turn the lighting and see what party they're going to vote and see if there could be any difference. Now, what you could do is like depending on how you choose this sample and sample when I say group of people that participate in your experiment makes a huge difference. If you just choose uh, your participants, if you do this experiment in a majorly red state, right, you might get a very biased uh, sample size. So your results gonna be widely affected by your sample. And if you choose the age group, maybe, you will have a different sample, different result. So these, all these different factors that you have to control when you do these experiments, and it's really, really hard to make this experiment, I mean, it is possible, probably, but then it will be either too expensive or just too time-consuming to get a meaningful result. And even then, there's going to be some factors that you cannot really control, right? There are too many factors that makes who we are as a person come to a point as an, as an adult. And uh, that to be able to control all these experiments, you will either, A, have a huge sample size, you know, maybe thousands, you know, that's not going to be possible for, for an experiment to, to, to find out any effect. Or you're going to be having a confining factor. You're going to see some results, uh, but those results are not going to be as meaningful as you would like them to be. So you had a, a recent study or an article here about um, spectral optimization. And do you want to define you know, what you did with that study and what that was all about, the purpose and your findings? Sure. Um, Spectral optimization study that you refer to as um, my PhD work and some of the work that has been built from that. The idea is um, light um, interacts with surfaces in a very um, 
in a very in a simple way that we can estimate light that hits on a surface of an object either is reflected that comes to our eyes and that you know initiates vision either transmitted if the object is transparent or translucent and if the object is not transparent it's either reflected or is absorbed by the object so this light that is absorbed by the object turns into heat and that becomes useless for lighting purposes so we know that the LEDs and other solid state lighting devices, we can control, we can tune the spectral output of these uh, LEDs. The idea comes, um, why don't we send enough light so most of the light is reflected and this absorbed light is minimized? So you can imagine that a red light, a red, red surface um, will reflect a lot of longer wavelengths, like, like your head, right? But it will absorb the energy in the shorter wavelengths, just you know, closer to UV. Any light that you send to the red object as the blue light will be wasted, pretty much. So if you can optimize the, the lighting that the red light is going to be, red uh, hat is going to be reflecting enough light so that you see and your visual perception is not going to change, you can actually um, save a lot of energy. And I started using uh, computational methods to quantify the maximum uh, energy savings. And in these initial studies that we were looking for, um, we didn't really limit our spectrum of the light source to any specific technology. We said, okay, what happens if you didn't have any limitations of the spectra? We can create crazy shapes, and we know that we cannot really create them right now with whatever technology we have. But what happens if tomorrow in 20 years, 40 years, that we can create these SPDs? What will be the maximum energy savings? It turns out we can actually save up to 70% energy uh, if we just optimize the lighting for each colored part of uh, an object. And then I did some uh, visual experiments uh, in, in a lab condition again uh, with colored objects. And these are uh, mostly fruits and vegetables that people know their colors of. And there was other uh, human-made objects as well, like a Coca-Cola can is a very known, like almost branded red, right? If you see the red of the Coca-Cola, you would know that that's it. If it's slightly different, then you will notice the differences. And it turns out that under control conditions, when the, you know, the background is a certain way, people really couldn't tell the difference between the optimized lighting and the white light source. Mm -hmm. um, and this is pretty much the idea. And of course, there are applications of this to beyond architectural lighting, like museum lighting. And that's one of the things that I'm uh, quite interested in as well. The, um, it's interesting that you, you know, um, is it TM20 or TM30? That's the, the IES's technical membranum on, on card. So TM30. Okay. So, I, I saw a demonstration of it a couple of years ago where they, I think they were doing what you're, they were optimizing the light to show more rich colors or make the boxes look ugly. And they were showing us different mm -hmm. ways that you can do this. It was a demonstration room. I found it fascinating. Then it was explained to me. Then I walked out of the room and forgot everything. <laughs> I couldn't remember how, like it was complicated. The other thing is that I sell light bulbs every day. And one of the things that's super confusing for people, like we're, how, Greg, how long are we into like 730K, 830K, 950K? Like I, that, that, was, that was a ride before we were even in lighting, like labeling <sighs> lights by their Kelvin temperature rather than cool white, daylight, and warm white. And when I speak to customers on the order desk, they still want to hear about cool white, daylight, and warm white. And so mm -hmm. my question to you is, is there a point at which this research goes be beyond the point of actual deployability due to complexity? That's a great question, and that's a very valid question as well. I mean, one of the things that um, I guess 
could say a limitation of these metrics that we use in, in color science and propose for people to use as we want accuracy and accuracy is important in, in scientific perspectives. Uh, but if people are not going to get the difference and those minute differences are not going to make a huge impact, then you might just question, okay, what is it? Um, what, what, would, what should we do next, right? And um, ISCM30 is a kind of improving on color rendering index, which uh, gave people a single value. And what you were saying is 750, 850 was starting with the um, the CCT in one single value. It's not even one single value, one digit, right? Because it was like 8,000 and just sure. the eight. And then 50 was like 78, it was the CRI value. So one of the things um, in the past that work well is the correlation between a single value like CCT and a specific light source. If you read papers on 70s, 80s, and that's true for you know practice as well, people have certain types of fluorescence and incandescent was kind of didn't change, right? The quality of the incandescent was pretty consistent. They didn't have LEDs that can provide a lot of different CCTs. And with that, people kind of had this reference, almost like a benchmark against um, certain CCT, they know that if you get a color rate fluorescent, they will have a certain CCT and they, they kind of match. Well, with the LED, that was a problem. And that's why the whole ISCM30 and color rendering metrics improving just came up because there was a need for um, correcting those color rendering values and CCT. CCT is not a perfect metric as well. So what, for example, you will have a CCT or 4000 Kelvin light source that could look a little yellowish white or a purplish light, there's two different light sources, they, mm -hmm. will, they will look quite different, but they will have the same 4,000 Kelvin. Mm -hmm. So from your uh, customer perspective, yes, they would like to, um, and that's not just customers, that's a lot of, a lot of us, like all the people, there are a lot of visual, there are a lot of information in outside world, right? Outside of our specific interests. And we don't want to make a lot of complex decisions. We want to simplify things as much as possible. So it's making decisions is, uh, easy for us, and we don't have the time to think about every small decision in our lives. So one one lamp, like one value, kind of worked pretty fine. Sure. But from there, if you get warm white, right, or cool white, and if the value is not matching what they want them to match, it's going to be a problem. Mm. I mean, we can still give them warm white, in my cool white, just use nominal names. But if I can create a lamp that will hold like a old warm light, but it's going to look cool white, they're just going to be cheated. You're going to feel cheated yeah, because sure. your metric is not doing what it's supposed to do anymore. And that has been the problem. Of course, there's no single, uh, there's no single solution to that. And uh, I will, um, so that's one of the things that I want to talk about because um, color rendering metrics, so not, of course, it's not special to color rendering metrics, but any model, any mathematical model um, is not perfect, right? There's a mm -hmm. saying George Box says, um, all models are um, false, but some are useful. So we had to understand that models cannot be perfect. Some are, some are dangerous. <laughs> some are dangerous. Yeah, that could be dangerous too. They could lead people to make wrong decisions. And that's sure. what we, as lighting colored researchers, trying to avoid. We just want to make people, give, give people the right tools to make decisions. And of course, if people want don't want to use those tools, we just have to come to a conclusion, not conclusion, but I guess in the middle point, it's like, what is the minimum amount of information that will help you to make the best decision? Is it a single value? Is it two values? Is it a nominal scaling like CCT? 
Um, and I, I will admit that color is is a very visually um, engaging topic that everybody has an experience of. Sure. So for for people, it's kind of an easy topic to talk. But when you start doing the math, it's hard to communicate. And that's why we have all these increasingly getting co- more complex um, or seemingly complex, I would say, I should say, um, metrics. I know it's a, it's a long answer to your short question. Well, the, the, my original question was, can you manipulate human behavior doing this? And I think the only, and you know, or can you influence human behavior? Whatever word you want to use, that's not going to give a negative connotation. But if you want to sell more Coca-Cola, can you use lighting to sell more Coca-Cola or whatever, right? Um, I think that there's a tyranny in choice. I think there's a tyranny in complexity that mm-hmm. um, when it comes out of academia and starts to distill down. If it doesn't go anywhere, it's usually because there was a, um, I went to a horticultural conference this time last year and there were, there was like this industry and academia and contractors all agreed on some simple principles about the deployment of led lights in the horticultural industry. It was interesting because it, it wasn't complicated. It was simple. I can't remember it now, but they had agreed and sort of like, there was this agreement and then there was deployment into the industry through sim- like a simplistic, a simplistic deployment. This is what you have to do. And so mm-hmm. a contractor who's installing, you know, horticultural lighting systems can have a certain amount of knowledge, but it can't go too far. Otherwise it becomes too complicated. Right. Can we get to a point or can we work towards from academia to the distributors, which are the, you know, kind of we're in the trenches. You guys are, you know, back in the ivory tower. Is there a way we could work toward metrics or something that was simple enough for distributors to understand people on an order desk or counter sales talking to customers um, that would then make sense to the people buying the light bulbs? Like that's where that in order to have a massive effect, something has to be communicated between the people who sell light bulbs to end users and the end users. And in the past, that was marketing. They'd sauce it up, right? They call it, you know, full spectrum or um, daylight, right? To, to pass this understanding on to a client, they would give it a simple name. Is it possible for your results from your studies? Can you see some distillation of those down to very simple principles that can be passed from an order desk or on the internet to a end user? Right. Not specifically from my research, but I can see that some people are interested in this. And I, I think that there's some research, there's a research gap in this area, definitely. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I well, what you what you mentioned is, is quite important that there's a complexity of these terms and metrics and numbers and what they mean to people. But I think the first step in trying to diffuse all these complexities into uh, what is useful to the end users is defining what is important, right? Uh, visual perception changes with lighting, we know that, and certain colors can be increased and the saturation of, the increase in saturation kind of changes people's preference of the, and the perception of the scene. So you can actually manipulate the lighting in a way that certain products will be perceived more likable than others. So you can make people buy objects, if, you know, or just make them like look nicer in a store. And if they like how they look on in the mirror, they will just purchase that thing, right? If it's a makeup or it's a clothing, piece of clothing, whatever that is. So there is some manipulation that can, and that was a discussion back, um, I mean, it's, it's been discussed a long while. I don't know if people still do that, but, you know, the um, a butcher could change the lighting of the, uh, the, the meat so that will look more um, 
And that works. So that, that works. Yeah, it works. Because the visual system cannot really, well, the visual system is very complex and it, it does a good job, but there are some limitations. It can be tricked into things that are, that are not real. So it, it is uh, more works in a way that it kind of tries to get a representation of the system. So you can actually trick the visual system, but specifically illuminating the, the meat and the, and the reds. And so they wouldn't, if, if the visual system doesn't get a clue that the lighting is changing, it will think that the object is red. But mm-hmm. if you change the overall lighting to red, it will just, it will give a clue and the visual system will know, okay, everything is red. So I'll just recalibrate myself and the red of the you know meat is not actually as red. But the way you do the design is very important, right? So the intent is very important in that. The, and can you control that? Yeah. No, you finish up. Can you control that? Go ahead. No, I just want to say, can you control that? I don't know if, if I think can you can. A lot of I think you can. I think there's there's I think when we look at um so Greg and I have been in thousands, tens of thousands of different facilities from mines to third-party logistics to manufacturing and looked at their lighting systems. And, you know, a lot of times you're just in there, you're looking up, okay, you want to save some energy or whatever. But what's interesting is that there are certain applications where we have known effects. So for example, let's say you go to a theater to watch a live performance. What's going to happen is the theater is going to be very bright when you walk in, when you want to find your seat. Okay. And then Prior to the show starting, what they're going to do is they're going to create a massive contrast in light between where the audience sits and the stage. And the reason for this is to let people know it's not time to get up. It's queuing, right? You're not time, it's not time to get up. It's not time to be distracted by the person over there picking their nose or whatever's going on or that person whispering. It's time for you to be quiet and look up here. Right. And so that's something that's fascinating to me that, you know, we've known this for a hundred years that you can, by making a massive contrast, you can create focus and guide people's behavior towards something. Um, same thing happens in a sports stadium and an ice hockey rink where they'll, they'll dim the lights on the, on the fans and they'll put all the light on the thing. And so you're focused in there and that's where your eyes are going. And that's where you're told by the lighting system to do something. Um, and you know, that past another example is casinos so when people talk about circadian lighting um you know the casinos have known from the 1960s that if you screw up someone's circadian rhythm if you shine 5000k light in their eyes directly into their eyes they'll give you their paycheck right they've known this for forever right <laughs> how do we then take take those principles and then relook at them and reexamine them for um, ways in which we can deploy lighting in other aspects of our world to, to make the kinds of results that are healthy for everybody. Yes. So it's time to sit still and watch the performance or it's time for you to leave now when it's time to leave the lights come up. Right. And now it's time for you to go home. You <laughs> can't stay here. Right. How, uh, you know, how do we, we know that when you dim the lights, people become more relaxed. Nobody wants to meditate in a bright room. Um, you know, meditation, darkness is required. How can we take those basic crude, rough things that we know and just like, how do we study that and distill it so that we can create principles that help people um, make more better lighting systems, more efficient lighting systems? I think there's a great uh, 
a lot of great examples that you mentioned, and um, definitely true that there's a lot of basic principles out there, and it's been discussed widely. And if you just open any lighting book net right now, that you will find those principles, right? And that's one of the first things that you should be taught in and in lighting design practice. Um, the complexity, I think, comes when the uh, lighting conditions are not always on the extremes. When you have a contrast of 1 to 20, 1 to 50, yes, that will direct people. But what happens if you have the, direct, uh, the, the um, contrast 1 to 5? Is there a quantified value? Is the background is affecting? And it's like, again, that becomes how you model visual system. And for me, that's, that's almost like this, that's the holy grail of mm, visual yeah. research. And that's, that's, that's huge. It's not just lighting. It's for, uh, for humans to understand the brain, how it works, and how we can process information. It's the, uh, the ultimate goal for us to understand this. If you could understand it, that would be no question. We wouldn't be talking this, right? We will just know how it works. We'll just put the lighting where it's needed, when it's needed, and people would do that. Um, so the complexity comes with different things and, you know, people's lives and contrast, color surfaces, uh, age, people's visual perception changes and all this kind of stuff. So we can do rules of thumb and yeah, in, in a very busy airport, you want to find your way, right? Spot will just guide you to the, um, you know, to the place that you should go, but darkness will just say, okay, you're not supposed to go there. It's, you know, maintenance or security or whatever, that kind of stuff. And I think that's um, that's an important way of teaching lighting, and that's kind of one of the things that we try to do in Penn State, that teach these basics. But then again, understand that life is not as black and white always. You should sometimes make um, assumptions about how people's going to use the specific space. And I believe, and that's uh, again, that's my personal, um, I guess, view. And that is why lighting is so um, kind of hard to quantify lighting design, the process, you know, mm -hmm. you cannot really say, okay, you just put one, two, three contrast, people's going to be there all the time. You're going to get super good lighting. And that's, that's the only thing that you should do. There's always context and there's different uh, tasks and there's a different user. So you have to first understand the space, understand the users, understand the, the context or the, the textures, you know, uh, the colors and the surfaces and the brightness and all that kind of stuff becomes a little more complicated. And how do you put that in a formula or just how do you put that in a table? Can you I think the formula is the, I think the formula is the issue. I, I, I mm. think that, I think the problem is that, is that what, what, so if you look at the, um, what the circadian people or whatever you want to call them, the people that are studying the health effects of lighting. So, um, what they've realized is that darkness is important and darkness is light in a way. It's a type of light, mm -hmm. right, that we need. Um, but, you know, what's curious to me is that a lot of stuff's coming out about light changing. So being one color in the morning and a different color in the afternoon and sort of gradually and then level clouds going across the sun and then different light levels. I'd like to see an experiment where um, like that one to five ratio, let's say you're walking down the aisle of a grocery store and the light levels change on the products as you're walking down the aisle. And so the ketchup all of a sudden is dark and then it's light. I mean, I'd, I'd love, I, I think the problem is like trying to, this is the formula, this is what you do. Uh -huh. I think it might be interesting to see how humans react to significant, but not drastic, but significant contrast of light on products as people experience them on the shelves or, you know, or, or for example, in an art gallery, museums are very interesting for this, where you could, uh -huh. you're walking through the museum and the light shining on the piece 
is one color, then it's less bright, then it's broader, then it changes its color temperature. And you're seeing this piece of art change in real time in front of you. So this idea that this is the set amount, it's cool white, you want this many lumens and you want to shine it like this and this is the CCT and that I think that's part of the problem. I think people people's attention is called to by changes in light. And if we were to look at, instead of fixing values, if we were to say, no, 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 you don't want to fix anything. What you want is it to evolve in real time in front of the person in a, like within 30 seconds, say, or within a certain amount of time, you're like, all of a sudden the mustard becomes very bright and you're like, oh, maybe I need mustard, right? I bet you <laughs> for sure that would work. I just have a yeah, gut feeling definitely. on it. Yeah, you agree? <laughs> no, uh, your gut feeling is, I, I definitely agree with your gut feeling, and that's kind of what the visual um, visual research uh, tells us. The vision works in a way that it, we are attracted to the changes in the environment, time, temporal, and uh, spatial changes. Uh, because things that are stable um, and steady is boring for us. We, we are in a way that we're trying to find out what's happening around us because that it is more relevant for us. Is it an enemy? Is it food? Is it something that is changing in the visual environment tells us that there's something important for us to focus. And if you did that in the example, uh, change the lighting or the contrast in the, in the aisle and people will just definitely will, you know, go to that, they, their attention will be drawn to that um, product, specific product. But of course, we're not just um, visual robots. We're not just looking at things that are we are thrown because we have a cognitive process as well. So again, brain is very complex, right? Um, if you don't need mustard or just hate mustard, right? If, you, if you're a person who just like, you know, been over, over those uh, mustard when you were a kid, you wouldn't buy it no matter how much light you put in it. So it will probably give you a negative connotation. Just, oh my God, I don't want to see this right now. I'm just going to move on. So Yeah, I want to see that other thing they're highlighting. Like yeah. what, what would, like even, even a negative, even if you could create a negative reaction, that is so wonderful. Like, even though, like, forget about, forget about whether all, I don't care if, if they sell more Alpo dog food next week, like, that's not what I'm interested (laughs) in. What I'm wondering is, can you change people's reactions to a store or to a, a museum or whatever interior environment you want by not by changing the color temperature or TM30, but simply by creating real-time contrasts that are at a certain rate of change. So it's not too fast that it shocks you, but it's fast enough that you're able to experience it, have a different visual experience as you're walking through a museum. I think that, I think that's the Holy grail, man. I think if people could figure out what it would do, if you could create disgust, mustard, Mm -hmm. that's wonderful. (laughs) Like if someone told me they could do that, that's fascinating. You know, like shine some, make, make, make Trump look more orange. Like if you hate him, <laughs> make him look even more orange. You know what I mean? Like I, I that's what, yeah. you know, and not to get political folks, this is a non-political show, sure. you know, but make, make Biden look more pale, you know, by, yeah. you know, hitting him with that 7,500 cat. You know what I'm saying? Like if you, if we yeah. could learn to do that, man, that would be so amazing. I mean, you can very simply do that, and it's a trick maybe people shouldn't use and shouldn't know. Uh, but if you make people, again, it's, it's a rule of thumb. It's not that I am, uh, you know, saying that people should use that, but that is kind of a knowledge that I guess anyone, you know, a little color experience will, will agree with that. It, when people have a green tint, they kind of look sick. Yeah. Right? So if you change the color rendering in a way that people, and 
for us, it turns out, and literature suggests strongly suggests that people are making decisions on the color appearance of red objects, and that seems to be. And there are some slow, um, like small evidence on the evolution importance of red because of uh, for blood, the uh, skin, you know, complexion. Because if you kind of look into other people just to see if they're sick, and historically has been right, uh, or just recognize their faces, are they foes or? friends. So red is an important color for us. So we make judgments based on uh, how color red changes. So if it gets too saturated, which is like, you know, that that's is pink red and changing. It's, yeah, pink is uh, um, quite desaturated red, uh, I would say, and a little of purple as well. Here. So I would I would say that that's why women wear red lipstick. Uh, red has huge connotations in mm-hmm. a lot of different things, like architecture, design, and one of the things is just it's fire, uh, it's a blood, it's uh, you know color of passion and love. So red in that aspect is very strong, and I, I'm not really surprised that red lips, uh, lipstick is much preferred by by women. So um, again, that kind of goes into cognitive aspects, and because in different cultures uh, there seems to be certain uh, trends in terms of colors, like red is quite important for a lot of cultures, but if you say yellow, in certain cultures in China or India, they will mean different things to what, what it means in, in, a, in a Western country. So you cannot, you cannot always generalize those um, meanings, uh, but there seems to be some trend in certain colors like red and, and white and black and a few things. Yeah. So in terms of the importance of, of seeing color, we have CRI or we've had CRI. Now it's this TM30-15 or TM30, whatever. Is is that the right model in your in your opinion? Is that the way the lighting industry should go? And when will it get there, if that is the right way? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, CRI has... <laughs> Uh, given that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm teaching color science, I'm doing color science, and um, I work with uh, folks who did ISTM 30, and I, uh, my, my supervisor was working on CQS, who is a model color, uh, color rendering model um, metric that was uh, pre- predecessor of ISTM 30, and kind of pushed this idea, not pushed this, like, proposed this idea that one value is not enough to quantify the color appearance of objects, and that comes uh, important because it, it turns out people are not just looking at light sources, especially in the, the layman, like normal folk, right? They're not just going on the ceiling, oh, this is the color of the light source. It's interesting, right? What happens, what is more interesting for people is the objects, because uh, light, as you mentioned, actually, is an interesting point that I wanted to mention. The gradual, slow, gradual changes over time in lighting is not always um, more obvious, more evident to people. For us, the lightness changes, and lightness is different than brightness in the sense that lightness belongs to objects. You're saying lightness. lightness. You're saying lightness. Lightness. Okay. Yeah, lightness. So when I say lightness, lightness is the brightness of a surface. So um, the colors of objects are called light, right? And brightness is usually used for light sources. A light source could be bright or dim. Um, a surface could be um, very uh, light or very dark. Right, so that, those are two different uh, aspects. But lightness, it turns out, is more important, and there's a lot of visual vision researchers saying this. You know, even though the the, the ratios are not huge, people are uh, using the lightness values. It's almost like an internal mathematical calculation. We're doing really fast, and we are very good at this. 
to find out the edges of the objects, how we can detect objects and what is the difference, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, if you change the lighting overall slowly, it kind of does contribute to our cognition, cognitive purposes. We know that, oh yeah, it's getting dark now, so the day is ending, or the light is super bright, it must be noon, that kind of stuff. Right? But overall, for us, it's more about the objects that is important. So color rendering metrics kind of trying to get you to the idea that uh, if you change the lighting, um, the objects will change, and it might be important, especially for the design purposes. So what CRI sucked at was how do you calculate this? The color models are outdated. There was only eight samples or desaturated, so it wasn't really representative of what we see in real life. And also, some experiments, the experiments that kind of showed CRI wasn't really uh, estimating what people's perception, and that was a bigger problem, right? So we were saying that, okay, CRI 90, you think the higher number is going to be good, right? It turns out it's not. If you have a higher score, you might still be bad, or you might have a lower CRI value, and people prefer that. So mm. CRI is not giving you the, giving a score of what you think you're, you're judging. And that was, for me, that was a major problem. What's the, CRI of, what's the CRI of candlelight or firelight? I would be close to 100. So, okay. So, but so like that, I would say that at night people would prefer that light. Like if you were asking them, you know, would you rather, would you sit on this porch with 5,000 KCFLs or would you rather sit by this fire here? Their preference is going to be that. So yeah, so so what, what, what are you saying though, that the CRI is a crude metric that can't tell us anything? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that. The way it calculates how you like things is not perfect, ah, okay. and that's and the the things that are good about uh, CRI is kept in ISTM 30. So if anything, that that would be okay. And I agree with that. And there's a lot of people who agree with that at the time as well. And they were saying, okay, um, you know, the fluorescence came on in the 50s and and so on. And they're saying, okay, incandescent we like, we know we like. It's kind of fire, you know, uh, it just burns um, burn a piece of coal and it kind of works and one of the reasons that we like is we, again, evolutionary reasons, we uh, evolved under either daylight or fire. So people have a preference for that kind of color, even though it's not perfect in terms of color rendering. You cannot really differentiate blue objects under incandescent. So it doesn't really good, doesn't do a good job in terms of discrimination, mm -hmm. but it has this emotional sense that it kind of feels cozy and fireplace, a kind of connotation with, with uh, things that we like. And people kind of kept that, okay, CRI should be, again, uh, we should have a reference point. What we like should be the reference. And if you get close to it, you, should, you are a good lamp. And that was mm. the idea with CRI, right? If you're mm. either daylight or incandescent, firelight, you know, candlelight, whatever you want to call this. Sure. And they were saying, okay, 100 is good. Um, you know, lower scores is bad. But what happened that LEDs could increase the saturation of reds and because it's different than the spectrum was different than uh, candlelight incandescent, like a, a neodymium incandescent lamp, kind of a CRI of 70, 78 or something, people prefer that more than incandescent. They were kind of similar lamp, but CRI incandescent, uh, neodymium incandescent was lower CRI. People prefer that because it increased the saturation of red, hence mm. the importance of red, right? So that was that was the limitation of this. Like I, we know that we like incandescent in certain aspects, but it's not the, the ideal source, right? 
And then ISTM sort of kind of build on that and edit, okay, it's not just the fidelity, what we call fidelity is being close to the reference. And then it's the preference as well, because CRI doesn't really tell you about what people will like under this lighting condition. And at the time, people didn't really care, I guess, to say, okay, we know that being close to CRI is good. And they assume, and that's an important assumption in CRI, that if it's close to incandescent, people will like it. They should be fine. And it turns out it's not because now we have LEDs. Um, so the major philosophical question that color rendering research and color rendering and people are interested in this facing is this. What is important for us? What are we trying to quantify? Is it mm -hmm. colorfulness? Is it preference? Is it being close to some fidelity, like normalness? And I see, <laughs> I have done um, this interesting um, meta-analysis of uh, color rendering research studies starting from, you know, early 30s or 40s up to 2019 uh, while I was doing my postdoc. And it turns out these studies use a lot of different um, subjective evaluations. They just say normalness, uh, acceptability, preference, att attractiveness, saturation, colorfulness. Some of the words are kind of similar in terms of you know meaning, but they're not well-defined. So in these experiments, we don't know what people are judging, right? Hmm. And if your metrics are based on these vague definitions, you're having a problem because what you're proposing is a little, a little vague. And that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we should first identify what is important. Maybe we should start clarifying what these cluster of words and what is more important for us. And if they're similar, like, you know, just group them into one and just say, okay, this is important for people. People will like, if you want to buy a lamp, you're going, going out like end user, right? He doesn't care about, you know, he or she or they. They don't care about really what's happening with the um, energy efficiency, how efficient they are. They just maybe want to see how object looks, right? Maybe mm -hmm. specifically red objects. Is that going to be enough information for you? Just giving the lighting out? industry is obsessed with like um, trying to pass on information that people don't care about. <laughs> I'm serious, right? And so, yeah, and, and we want it easy too, just like yeah. an easy number, like yeah. ninety. Yeah, ninety, right? We, we call, but the the lighting industry handled this on its own for years with marketing. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, right. so the the marketing departments would you know take these lamps and give them cool white day, daylight, right? Full spectrum, healthy bulbs, healthy full spectrum, right? And they'd sauce it all up, sauce it, right? And the way they were thinking about it is, how can I get someone to buy something, right? The way the lighting industry is thinking about it now is, how can I pass on this super complicated information to people so they can make better choices on energy and color? Mm -hmm. Right? And we're kind of stuck there because you look at the lighting facts program. I think it's been abandoned, mm -hmm. right? You look at these different things where, you know, color temperature, they put the bar on the box and it's red at one end and blue at the other. And there's like a little arrow pointing. People don't understand this. They don't get it. And um, it, do we need to bring in some black margin, magic marketeers into with these, uh, uh, you know, your, you academic side, the, the, the scientists and say, guys, so we have to come up with something focused on what people care about. And that is very simple so we can pass it on. Whereas I think in the lighting industry, like it gets stuck in this TM30 cycle of saturation and this and that. And it's, it's too difficult for people. 
How do we get beyond this? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, uh, I think there's a, um, there are different uh, ways of tackling this. And uh, I think one of the, first of all, I guess we have to acknowledge that there's a philosophical um, conflict between these two different approaches that I will call top-down to bottom-up, right? Mm -hmm. Top-down is coming from lighting industry or just researchers saying that this is good, you should use this, and bottom-up is like, this is what I need, give me what I need. And maybe that might be super simple as well. So I would be, obviously I'm doing being a researcher, I will be being uh, one side, but I'll try to understand from the other perspective too. And I, what I will say is, uh, in a society where things are made, decisions are made by the available information, you would like to have as much information as possible. If you don't have, and I agree that the passing or forcing that information is, is not good, uh, you shouldn't be, but you should provide that information. If people don't choose to use that information, that's up to them. But uh, all, capital, uh, all capitalistic systems are based on the uh, assumption, at least classical uh, you know, uh, systems, are based on the assumption that people are making decisions um, in a knowledgeable way. They know everything. They know all the products. They know every uh, aspect of whatever decision they have to make, and they make logical decisions. Rational, and I think, that's is the word the they use. Rational. But the consumer yeah, is rational. not rational. We know they're not rational. That's exactly. changed. Exactly. Yeah, right? they're not. They're totally yeah. irrational. And the the funny thing is, like, when so I would say that of my online orders, when anybody's ordering a, a fluorescent tube online, I would say forty percent of the time they have no idea what they're going to get. They've just been exhausted in the search, and that code looks uh -huh. close enough. F thirty T twelve CW. It must be thirty inches, Greg. Uh -huh. It must be thirty inches because it's F. No, that's the wattage, bud. 30 is the wattage. <laughs> it's 36 inches long. <laughs> oh, man, I got to return these from Vancouver, BC back to Toronto. I thought it was 30 inches, not 36 inches, right? So the, the, uh, there, there, there has to be, or maybe there doesn't, because I've often, Greg and I have often talked about how the lighting industry likes complex metrics because it confuses mm -hmm. people and drives up prices. Okay. Right, so, like interesting perspective. Yeah, so let's make it as confusing yeah. as possible, so that we can, so that two products that are identical can seem like they're actually very different when they're really identical. This happens all the time in lighting. Like, uh, I would say, right. I, I don't know if it's, um, we haven't decided, but my suspicion is that someone at the top knows this, and they're like, change the name, change the metric, change the color name. And then everyone will have to buy our brand after because they'll never be able to get it figured out. And that's true, man. That's mm -hmm. true. That happens. You know, people want, I need to have this SSPX 4100K. Well, that's just a 41K T8, brother. Like, there's a there's hundred replacements for that lamp. No, 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 no. It has to be the same as the one that was there before. So it's got to be SPX 41 Eco. Da -da -ba -da -ba. And, you know, so there's complexity is both is good for the lighting industry because it raises prices. Complexity is mm -hmm. bad for the consumer because it, it removes choice in a sense or makes the choices more complex than they're willing to invest. Right. Uh, I kind of understand what you're saying in, in the sense that um, people don't want to make complex choices because you know they have other things to worry about. And I guess the question is, or just 
the important note is uh, what is that the sameness? Can we agree on, does everybody agree on these two lamps that have different metrics? Are they really the same or what is your acceptability rate of that being the same? I mean, you probably wouldn't mind or just X person wouldn't mind, but that, that might be person, a person who's very sensitive to, let's say, Flickr or what, whatever sure. that thing that you are not giving information on. And, you know, that Flickr, I mean, specific aspects of lighting could be um, health-related, could cause health-related issues. So, again, it's it's a whole issue of how much information is needed, but also how much information um, is enough. And I'm not really... I don't know if there's only one person who pushes down information to say, okay, let's make them co-complex and just let them buy. But there might be companies, you know, or sales, I guess, you know, that kind of could use that um, to their advantage. And that's no way of knowing that, at least from my perspective. Oh, they do it for sure. I'll tell you for sure that they do that. Oh, yeah. That's what it's about, bro. You got to sell the sizzle and the sauce. Come on, man. (laughs) For sure, they know about it, and for sure, they're doing it. That's certain. I can tell you that guaranteed. The question is whether or not there's a couple questions here, but we we're almost at the end of the hour here, so um, yeah. I'll leave you with one more. Um, I'll, do you? Is it ethical? Is it ethical oh, that the not. lighting the lighting lighting industry has so much confusion in it when it's not necessary? Um, I, I think that the um... The issue is that people don't see this uh, complexity as, as complexity. I think they, that at least from my perspective, I see this as information that people trying to help people make decisions. I don't see myself as someone who's just trying to do some evil work in a lab like a med scientist. It's like, okay, I'll just have to push people more complex metrics so they can, <laughs> someone else can make money out of because why would I do that? I, I, I'm no, I wouldn't say you that. do that. I wouldn't say you do that, but for... I, I think what we're calling complexity, I think lighting manufacturer, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. No one's going to sponsor our show again, Greg. <laughs> I think, I think what, what we're calling complexity is what, what, what people would call brand differentiation would be another name for right. this. Okay. Um, that's an interesting – I definitely agree that some of the uh, nominal <laughs> – Categorization of products is is a little out of hand. That people use these buzzwords for marketing purposes, like sure. circadian lighting or human centric lighting. Yeah. Like, what does it mean? Like, what are you trying to say? Like, healthy lighting. Like, do we know that there's enough evidence? Uh, from a scientist perspective, I just want to see evidence if it's working. And I know as a scientist, it's like I don't think there's a hundred percent. There's no case. Mostly, even in physics, and that rules are pretty governed, right? You can't really say it's hundred percent. Things are always, there's always exceptions, there's always caveats, and we want to make sure that things work most of the time. And as I mentioned, the models are not perfect, but they're useful. And we have to talk about the usefulness of those models. And then brings back to the full circle, like, okay, let's decide what is useful and how can we make it so that people understand and make these decisions. Maybe not everybody has to understand this. Like a person who wants to change the bulb, there must be an easier way of uh, finding this information without reading, like you know, pages of catalogs and all that kind of sh- uh, information. But a designer who is trying to make a space look nicer for a specific museum or you know, retail store has to understand what lighting does because that's what you're doing. You're making a decision. Well, 
affects people's perception and behavior and then probably change the sales or whatever. So you have to make decisions, informed decisions, based on, based on evidence-based uh, results. And that's what, what, what I think is useful, that kind of information. How it is used in outside, outside real world, I mean, probably this real world as well, but it's like outside world. It is all outside of our control, of course. Once you do a metric, and I, I never proposed a metric, by the way. I just I shouldn't say like you know, I am doing that kind of work, and people have done this work, and there's you know, it's it's uh, it's research. Once you propose this, a method, a metric, and put it out there, and then you see how um, people react to that, and when you get some feedback, and you just keep you know changing this and modifying, and that's that's important as well. And, Folks in the IESTM30 have kind of worked really hard towards that, and they're still trying to educate people to see, you know, how people can use that. And that's uh, that's all, of course, different question. So I'm going to thank you for coming on the show, uh, Dr. Alp Dumris. Um, I'm going to say before I go that I was talking about the marketing departments of manufacturers, Greggy, not not the hard workers <laughs> at the IES working on TM30. Yes. Okay, just so I'm and the rest of the and the rest of the the researchers and that out there that we love so much. And if you've made it to the end of the show with uh, Dr. Dermis, thank you very much, Doctor. Any thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for inviting me. That was that was a great talk. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Yeah, have a nice day. Oh, crazy time! Oh yeah. It's crazy time. We're going to tcpi.com. We're going to get crazy, Greg. They're getting crazy with their Solistic line. Again, I said it before, but I don't know if crazy is the right word on that one, but we'll say it is. But it's really smart, actually, because they actually, what goes in the LED light bulb itself matters. Not all LED chips are the same. And TCP makes their own LED chips. They're an actual manufacturer lighting, which we've highlighted before. And in their Solistic line, it's a LED chip that eliminates a blue spike. You find a lot of LEDs. So what does that tell you? That it mimics or it does as close a job as it can to mimicking the sunlight. Sunlight is important. Color is important. TCP's got you covered with a great product line there. And when you're going out there to sell lights, man, you gotta you gotta you gotta buy into the the sizzle a little bit here. We got a lot of good innovations coming down the pipe in the lighting industry here. People want them in the field. And so what we talk about on the show, we're trying to we're trying to push the knowledge. Greg and I we're kind of spearheading this trench warfare thing on the front end. But at the end of the day, we we take our, we take these microphone headsets off and we go swing through the trees with a knife in our teeth and we want to sell people this stuff. And so do it. Go to tcpi.com, check them out. I go there every day. I order from them every, well, I don't know about every day, but almost every day. <clears throat> and so tcpi.com, Greg. Uh of course, Nailed, long-time members of Nailed, and they're crazy members. And, you know, we can't talk enough about it, man. If you're not associated now, I don't even know if we're going to let you in anymore. We might not even be taking members anymore, Graham. I'm so sick of it. <laughs> we're still taking you on if you're ah, the right one. Yeah, come on down. Hang out. And, uh, of course, Dr. Dermis, we really appreciate you coming on the show. You know, the, these scientists, guys, it's always funny when they bump into us because it's a, it's, it's a totally different conversation than they're used to in academia. Mm -hmm. They don't get it. They don't, they don't get the, uh, the, hey, how do we sell it? What, what are you talking about? I'm just, we're researching this. We're trying, no, 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 no. We want to know. Because <laughs> we want to sell it. We want to sell light bulbs, brother. <laughs> what can we tell the peeps out there that they need to know? 
And so right now the lighting industry and the science is, is not, is, has not really merged yet the way it has in horticultural lighting. I look forward to that. I think it's going to happen in the next five years or so. We're really going to start to see massive innovations and, 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 and stuff trickling down to the street, Craig. That's right. Let's get ready for it now. That's what we're doing. Prepping. Prepping. I'm not prepping. I'm selling now. I'm ready to go. For all you out there listening, get going. It's time to go sell light bulbs. Bye for now. Written on the rectory wall, there's a sign there for all. You are lost, Lord is there to find you.